This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to our panel, Is Love Really All We Need? How Does Society Shape Relationships? My name is Krista Applequist, and I'm an assistant professor of speech here at Moraine Valley. And let me just give you a little context about what this panel is about, and then I'll introduce our panelists and preview our topics for today. For those of you who may not have read the book 1984, this panel is part of Moraine Valley's One Book, One College series. And there are actually a lot of other events going on related to the book 1984 that you can find out about on the college's library website. Today, our panel is looking at how society shapes, distorts, constrains love. In the book 1984, it's, the book has been called a dystopia because it's sort of a depressing terrible view of the future. As Troy Swanson, our librarian, pointed out to me once, the book, though, at the heart of it is really a love story between Winston and Julia. And they have this natural, sensual love affair, which is strictly forbidden in 1984. Okay, luckily, the only thing actually forbidden in 1984 were low-rise jeans. (laughs) But... In the book, that kind of love affair is strictly forbidden. Now, I won't give away the ending. I won't tell you if they're captured by the government and tortured or not, but it's George Orwell. Maybe they ran off into the sunset. So today we are going to be looking at love and how society today actually constrains and shapes love. And with me today we have Michelle Zorowski from Science, Biology, and Gina Maselli hoffman from Art History, Leonard Wynn of Sociology, and Michael Crenshaw, who teaches English. Our specific topics today, we'll be covering the definition of love from each of these perspectives. We'll be looking at how relationships are shaped and constrained by society. Next, we'll be considering taboo relationships. What is considered taboo today as far as love? And finally, we'll look a little bit at the language of love, how society shapes and uh, controls language and how we talk about love. So to begin, with the first question for our panelists. What is the definition of love? Uh, Make sure you pick up. When I think of love as a, when I think of love as a biologist, I really just kind of think about it as three stages of hormonal release. That love isn't really something that you feel because someone loves you or you're attracted to them, it really happens because in stage one you have that lust phase where you release an enormous amount of estrogen and testosterone. And then the second second stage is attraction, and that's actually caused by neurotransmitters called the uh, monoamine groups. And there's three neurotransmitters that are released. One is dopamine. And dopamine, um, kind of interestingly enough, if someone does cocaine, Um, or when you smoke nicotine, what that does is it actually blocks the dopamine receptors and it causes you to have these massive releases of dopamine, which makes you feel all high and euphoric. So that's one of the things that gets released in massive quantities in that second stage of attraction. Also, um, norepinephrine, or what we know as adrenaline, and then the third thing is serotonin. And so all of those are different pleasure and reward systems of the brain. So that's the second stage in terms of the biological um, meaning of love. And the third is attachment. And 
those two hormones that are responsible for that, one is vasopressin, and the other one is oxytocin. And kind of interesting, oxytocin is released in massive quantities by a mother after she gives birth. And that's responsible for that bonding or that attachment between the mother and the baby. So it's really important for the mother to spend a lot of time with a newborn baby because they actually, she releases a massive quantity of this hormone, and it makes that baby attached to her. And that usually is like really what happens in that first six months of a baby being born. So it's really just those different stages of hormonal release that cause love. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about these hormonal releases is that these hormonal releases are very similar to people who have mental illness. And so you can kind of think of love as a form of mental illness. <laughs> you can tell my colleague has, has been in the lab a little bit too long. <laughs> Let's look at it from a different side. Um, I define love as a reciprocity of what they call reflective appraisals, things that confirm those, those things that we're looking for others that can confirm whether or not what we're, what we're interpreting is actually true. Um, also, given, that, given how one's own culture often influences how we interpret these reflective appraisals, love is often considered very relative. It varies from one person to the next one gender to the next, particularly how it's expressed. And some of the things that, that I'm, I'm mentioning with regard to that is definitely related to this thing called the social construction of reality. And with love, there's many different dimensions. Uh, there are, there's romantic love, which is very powerful and emotional, uh, a very deep physical attraction, as my colleague was trying to uh, let you guys uh, tell you about. And then there's this thing called obsessive love, where it's very, very emotionally intense, Oftentimes, there's people uh, exhibit extreme jealousy as well. And lastly, of that dimension, there's this thing called irrational love, where it's very reactionary as opposed to on a cognition level. Uh, but basically, uh, as I'm trying to say, is that it's a, it's a reciprocity of feelings. And, and with those feelings, there's this development of what they call passion, again, a profound sense of euphoria, again, what my colleague was trying to tell you guys about as well. <laughs> so again, without this mutual interpretation of two people understanding these and interpreting these symbols, uh, one or both could either be operating on this thing called lust or infatuation. And there you have it. <laughs> okay, Michelle and Leonard, I agree with both of you really. Oh, and I have a turn? No. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah. I mean, if you want to go, I... <laughs> no, you go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to keep mine as, <clears throat> excuse me, as short and sweet as possible. <laughs> For me, love is a deep personal attachment to another person. Okay. Now, from a literary English standpoint, you know, we're pretty big with words. You know, we love words. We love to have fun with words, play with words. And one of the things that usually gets ignored when it comes to love is actually, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually telling someone that you love that person. And a lot of people have a very hard time with that. Yes, we can all show love by you know, taking someone out, taking this person on a nice date, you know, for Valentine's Day, today, um, anniversary, birthday, things of that nature. But every now and then it's really, really good to tell the person that you're with that you love that person. Okay? And to me that's one of the main symbols of having a deep personal attachment to another person.
<laughs> okay, I, I really agree with Michelle, Leonard, and uh, Michael, but I think that uh, when you speak of love, as Leonard mentioned, you know, there are a variety of types of love, and I think that you really can have this euphoric feeling for not only a human being, but other items, ideas, concepts, people, place, or thing. And uh, how we, we deal with this issue that we call love is, is different for everybody. So I'd like to present a few visual images, if I may, <coughs> and some examples in the visual arts of different types of love. Um, as uh, Leonard mentioned, we do have a few visual images here that are reflective of the concept of what we call romantic love. And uh, you can see each image where we have uh, two people who are sort of hanging on each other and have this physical int intimacy and attachment. Each interpretation is a little different according to the artist's uh, interpretation of what love is, of course. And uh, we also have examples of familial love where you can love your family. So I have two really good examples of this type of love that exists. Um, also, one can have spiritual love, right? Uh, you can love uh, a god, an entity, a deity. So we have two famous examples here, Masashio's Holy Trinity and a Hindu example of uh, two famous deities, Shiva and Parvati from the uh, uh, Hindu religion. We also can have erotic love, which is another subcategory, and I have two very famous examples here on the screen for you. I'm certain that many of you probably heard of the Kama Sutra, correct? Um, so we do have this very famous uh, literary uh, illuminated manuscript uh, book that illustrates a variety of sexual poses, you know, the physical intimacy there, and it's also a, a way to achieve a higher spirituality. Um, also on the uh, on your oops, on your left hand side, we have a very famous Japanese uh, woodblock print that features love amongst <coughs> men and women, and it's called The Three Fronts. So you can have uh, this type of erotic love for more than one person. Um, also, right, as we, as we just recently found out in the news, we can have obsessive love, as Leonard, Leonard mentioned. And um, I have on the screen for you a very famous rendition of the uh, authorship of Lolita in visual cinematography form, um, where you have an old, older man, 45-year-old, who, who is smitten, you know, with a 12-year-old girl, which is usually forbidden in our society. Uh, we also have a very famous movie reiterating the concept of obsessive love uh, entitled Unfaithful. Uh, husband and wife, uh, the wife's feeling like she's having some problems in the marriage and she looks outside of the marriage and has a, uh, an affair with a, with a man and it ends in dire circumstances. And then, of course, we all know of the most recent obsessive love triangle um, between the uh, astronauts who drove 900 plus miles in diapers uh, to, you know, to basically allegedly uh, confront you know her her obsession her the man that she was obsessed with the uh, her his uh, lover or girlfriend or what have you um, for me, according to psychologist Robert Sternberg, there's this triangular theory of love, and I feel that after I read Orwell's uh, book often many, many times and many years ago and, and again for this presentation, I feel that Julia and Winston sort of move from this kind of infatuation to a romantic type of love, but in the end they, they move away from uh, commitment because they do not really have that, that commitment. There's a lack of commitment, so they develop what we call an empty or what Sternberg calls an empty type of love. So, so for me, there, there are a variety of types of love that exist. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to ask the audience now to add or comment on those definitions from our academic disciplines. Um, and while you're thinking of what you might want to comment on, I just want to mention, of course, in 1984, these kind of themes, sensual, lust, 
passionate, those were all forbidden. You were not allowed to feel those things in, in the book 1984. Uh, there's dedication and loyalty to Big Brother, and there's sort of a, a family kind of love that's allowed as long as you don't really like the person too much and you're just doing it to have children. That's kind of allowed as well. So audience, what kinds of questions or comments do you have as far as this question, definition of love? Yes, sir. What do you mean by love for oneself? the love for oneself because this is really driven by the interaction of hormones between two people. So if you, for no, what I'm saying, the, I'm not sure how to answer the love for yourself because it's interaction that as like I as a woman release estrogen, the male releases testosterone and it causes more and more to be released. So I don't know how to answer the love for oneself. If I can jump in, you just asked a biologist that question. I'm going to direct your question to the sociologist. <laughs> okay. I, I think for the most part what you just mentioned has a lot of truth to it. In order to be able to give, particularly give love, you have to know what love is. And that usually comes from within. So I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Um, given the different dimensions of love and some of the constraints in our society, which is what we're going to be talking about next, that kind of impact our society, sometimes love may not be enough. It, it may be more the commitment and the, reinvent, the reinvention of love that needs to be nurtured, and not, not only with oneself, but with your partner as well. And, and if I could piggyback on that, one of the things about um, long-term commitments is that, a, you know, from a biological standpoint, an important part of a long-term relationship is having sex. And uh, one of the things that I didn't mention is that in the attachment stage, the oxytocin that's released in that bond, that attachment that forms between, like, a mother and her baby during orgasm, males and females release massive amounts of this oxytocin and so the more you have sex the more this oxytocin is released thus the more attachment you have to that person so that's why like if someone starts dating if you start dating someone and you have sex with them on the first date as a female more than a male because the testosterone tends to kind of cancel out the oxytocin a bit so for females if they have sex very early in a relationship If a female has sex, generally she'll feel that attachment or that quote-unquote love at a really early stage because of that release of oxytocin. So that's why for females it's almost important to wait much longer in a relationship to have that initial sex so that you don't feel that fake attachment because it's just a release of oxytocin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't ask her. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, I think it's hugely influenced by the biology, and I do think it takes work, like what Leonard said, that you know you do have to do things for people in a relationship to keep that love going in a long-term relationship. And so part of it is you have to do things so that you do release that oxytocin through the lifetime of the relationship. 
But we know it can't be just about hormones. Go ahead. Well, I was say, I think um, that was a really excellent question, and I think that really it delves into the, the discipline of psychology, and I wish that we had a psychologist on our panel, because really no you think about Freudian <laughs> studies, <laughs> and the id, the ego, the alter ego, you know, that all has to do with, uh, with our psyche, and, and self-love, I feel, really fits into that, that component, you know, of our self-worth, self-love, and our psychological makeup. So I do think there is a biological factor, and of course it's sociological, cultural, and psychological, so they all work together, I believe. He's asking about a metaphysical. Yes, yeah, can, I, can I just add to that? To just add to what uh, my colleague, the biologist, it's, it's trying to identify what do we do with these sensations that are created by the biological uh, uh, mix in terms of these, these releases of hormones. And I think, again, the cultural aspect of us will, will oftentimes give us the impression that that's, maybe that's love. And we can get that not only from others, but we can get that from with our, within ourselves. So again, it's, it's, an, it's the, this sort of social or psychological interpretation of these biological sensations that occur a lot of times. Because without that, without those sensations in the body, it would just be your imagination. Okay, there will be more time for questions at the end of the panel, but for now, I'm going to move on to the next question. So if you didn't get to ask, just save it. Save it until. Yes, yeah, one more. Yes. Biology is Michelle over here. Yep. Sociology. Michael Crenshaw on the end is from English. And Gina is from art history. Okay, our next question. How are relationships shaped and constrained by larger societal forces? Michelle. One of the things we've seen over evolutionary time is that there's a difference between the X and the Y chromosome. And a long, long time ago, when we're talking about um, evolutionary time, what we're talking about are millions to billions of years. And so over evolutionary time, the X and the Y chromosome So, uh, sorry, over evolutionary time, the X and Y chromosome used to be the same size. So what we can see up here is that the X chromosome is the much larger chromosome and the Y chromosome is the really small one. The X chromosome right now, it has about 1,200 genes. The Y chromosome it only has about 78 genes. So at some point, these guys were the same size. But over evolutionary time, what we've seen happening is that the Y chromosome has actually shrunk down. What they believe is that the rate that it's been shrinking that in the next five million years that that Y chromosome may, if it continues at the rate that it's at, has been, it will shrink away. So what happens in society to what is um, the male and female relationship or what we're talking about is reproduction, what happens to reproduction? Do females evolve to reproduce with themselves, by themselves, or do they start to produce sperm? What happens to those kind of relationships. Okay, Alrighty, just to uh, dovetail off what my colleague just mentioned, it could be that given the fact that uh, we, we we're experiencing a, a great deal of changing norms, particularly gender roles and gender expectations, maybe that chromosome, that, that large 
uh, female chromosome represents the fact that now that they may be wearing the pants in the house and that Literally. when it comes to uh, all of these other different interpretations, maybe it's not necessarily uh, going to be from the traditional model, from the, patri from the patriarchal uh, point of view. So I think that's, that's kind of interesting. But I think as a sociologist, I believe that this idea of, of how our relationships are, are constrained or developed has a lot to do with a lot of social learning, usually through uh, the interpretation, the acceptance of our culture, uh, again, these things which help to guide our behavior, what is considered acceptable, not acceptable, those types of things as well. Uh, but one of the things that I really wanted to focus on with regard to this question was the fact that uh, some of the research that I focus on, uh, looking at the effects uh, that society have on young girls, is the idea of this thing called the beauty myth, where that there is this in our society, in Western culture, that being thin is in. It is the most desirable. But for a lot of our young, young, uh, young daughters, in which I have one, the, the idea of wanting to be thin at, a, at even an earlier age uh, represents something from the standpoint of, 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 of a pathology that young girls at this age, age 9, 10, 11, are so concerned about their weight that they're willing to uh, be on these, these diets that create this anorexia or bulimia so I think, and, and for me, I kind of went this way with this particular thing because if, this is a, if these are, are responsible for a lot of this social learning, what is this impact having on young girls when it comes to developing these relationships? So. And my, my concern about that is that in biology, one of the things that keeps a species going is natural selection. And what natural selection says is that those species that have the most advantageous genes survive, Good reproduce, point. and reproduce in large quantities to pass on those advantageous genes. And so with humans, it's really different. The natural selection, is it really natural because society is really forcing this, like, the thin person, the thin, beautiful, whatever we're putting out there as what is beauty is now suddenly it's not natural what we're choosing. In general, animals will just do choose who has the most advantageous genes for survival. Is it going to matter if you're beautiful or if you're not beautiful according to what society says that you're going to survive? No, that doesn't matter. But society puts the spin on the kind of the way that we're forcing the selection of the human species. So it's kind of a strange influence the way our media and just our society influences the biology access aspect of reproduction. Sorry, I'm cutting. Oh, no, excellent. Oh, no, that's all right. That's okay. <laughs> um, well, actually, actually, to piggyback off of what you were talking about in terms of, you know, having a, a young girl and a young daughter, um, from a literary standpoint, a lot of times we forget that it's, a lot of times it's the parents, not necessarily the government, who tend to shape you know, how we actually think of relationships. For example, all of us, well, I'm not going to say all, I don't want to generalize. Most of us have heard of Romeo and Juliet, okay? And what do you think of when you think of Romeo and Juliet? You think of two young kids hopelessly in love, willing to do almost anything that it takes to be together. Well, there's a certain part that a lot of people forget about when it comes to Romeo and Juliet. Juliet was actually pressured into considering relationships. Her mother actually said that, you know what, Juliet, you're 14 years old. And you know what? By now, you should already be married. You should already be thinking about having children. 
Okay, so now as a child, what's going through her head? She's not thinking about playing with dolls and hanging out with the freaks. She's not thinking about that now. She's focusing on the pressure that her mother has placed on her. Okay, so a lot of times we think about peer pressure and things of that nature, but when you read a lot of texts, such as Romeo and Juliet, a lot of times it is the parents. Another good example is A Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, and I, I tend to focus on Shakespeare a lot. He's one of my favorite writers. But A Midsummer Night's Dream is also another quality example of that. Why? Because now you have parents coming in saying, well, my daughter can't marry this person because he's not, quote, unquote, worthy enough. What will she do? She'll try to go behind his back and marry him anyway. He'll see that. You know, then he'll all of a sudden call on the fairies. I understand this is a romantic type of thing that may not happen today. He'll call on fairies. He just will call on fairies and say, okay, I want you to put drops in this person's head, in this person's eyes. That way when this person wakes up, you know, he or she will automatically fall in love with the first person that he or she sees. Okay? So a lot of times, yes, government does play a role, but when you read a lot of books in your classes as well as when you go to the library, Excuse me, pay attention to what the parents are doing because a lot of times parents are dictating it. And I'm pretty sure that some of you in your own personal lives, whether it's you or some of your friends, you may be able to relate to this as well. On that note, I just want to give the audience something to think about. Many of you in here are students and you're young and you're probably single and dating. And I just want you to think about you know, we were laughing about the age 14, you should be married by now. Whereas now, if you try to get engaged before you're 25 people might tell you are you crazy you need to get educated first uh, your parents and family might have certain ideas about whom you should be dating based on what they look like what religion they come from where they're pierced you know all of that might affect you know whom you date okay Gina of course I'm last right I do agree with everyone on the panel um, I also uh, agree with uh, Michael that parents do, uh, parents do really play a pivotal role but I do feel also the government does and uh, many other social factors and I'm trying to relate to the visual arts of course so um, here I think for a lot of uh, people your age or even my age um, peer pressure, um, all the evidence of reality, fake reality shows that, that people see on TV, how relationships are formed in this fake environment and how we play the role of voyeur, that also has a big effect on, on our relationships with, with, with another person or a group of people. So I have quite a few examples of what probably most of you are familiar with. Some are, are pro, some are con, some are good for the audience, some might have a, a, a you know a worse effect on the audience. But we have the show Big Brother, right? And everybody gets to select who they want to be on the show or not. And we see the relationships evolving on the show. And then we, we view this on TV and we think, well, this is what relationships should really be like, you know, because this is what we're exposed to every day in our lives. Um, oh, okay, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Um, the new wife swapping show, right, of course, where people can live in this altruistic world and pretend that they can swap their husband or wife for the day or the week and, and see what it's like to, to live on the other side. Um, that also might have a, a positive effect maybe perhaps on marriage relationships. Um, we have uh, Flavor Flav, the flavor of love, and all these oh. types of reality <laughs> shows, you know, oh, which boy. indicate to the viewers that if you're, you have a lot of money and 
you're single and you know you, you and you can get a lot of honeys right and you can have the great life and people see that and they think oh maybe I can have that too all I need is to have a you know hit record and you have a lot of money and I'll have this great relationship with uh, many women at one time right um, or survivor we've seen how the relationships have developed and evolved on survivor we even have an instance where um, what was his name Jeff Probst I think was supposedly having a, an affair with one of the um, contestants you know which is usually a taboo relationship um, so we, we I think that the TV and uh, movies also skew um, and then help shape you know what we think is, is acceptable in our personal relationships okay to the audience what questions or comments do you have about how society shapes relationships? Yes, in the back. fact that uh, the electronic media and the fact that we're a very visual society is very quick to, to create this change in culture when it comes to body type that's considered very, very desirable. The fact that now because it's electronically transmitted really quick, now it can become popular culture. And as a result of becoming very, very popular, that's the vehicle or the, the sort of the catalyst to get this perception of different perspectives going. Uh, even with regard to, I just wanted to mention just a little bit about, uh, you know, what, what one of my colleagues said about the, you know, the issue with family and things of that nature. If we're watching all of this electronic visual stimulate, stimulation, then when it comes to parenting our kids, to what degree are we parenting our kids? Is that face-to-face -face interaction, or is that from the electronic standpoint? Because kids today, a lot of them have TVs in their room, they have cable, and they have Internet. And given the fact that some years ago we would put a, a VHS tape in and let the kids, the little kids watch a movie for a little while, now there's several DVDs, there's cable TV, and so a lot of times parents don't have to necessarily be right there when it comes to parenting. And so what happens is some of these same views, kids are picking these up from their, what they call secondary groups, or from their peers. And that's where a lot of that social learning comes into play because people want to fit in. No one wants to be, you know, on the outside for the most part. But I hope I answered your question. I totally agree. There's that idealized symbol of, of good looks as well as that it, it resembles this thing called good health. The fact that this person is, is very, very ripped or they're very, very in, in very good shape. Uh, for the most part, again, the fact that it's idealized is because there's only a certain percentage of people in our society 
that actually look like that. And so it's that thing where we can buy into all of these different products to, because we, we live in a society that celebrates youth. And with that youth comes this, all these other things that comes along with being thin and things of that nature. I just want to comment on that. It's a recent phenomenon, actually, that in about the last 10 or 15 years, eating disorders and cosmetic surgeries among men have increased a lot, where it used to be just kind of a, a woman thing. And it is because of marketing. The advertisers are constantly telling you, be like this guy, be thin, be ripped, have these abs. So more and more men are starting to fall sort of victim to that that kind of vanity as well. Uh, used to used to see commercials on TV, say for whatever house product, and it was always like some fat, bald, older guy and his wife was a model. You know, and now today you're starting to see like more, you know, more equal distortion among what people should look like among the genders. Yeah. Do you think it's a downward spiral that can't go back? That we associate, you know, sex and beauty with love, which is subject to change when love is supposed to be on the Do you think there's a definition of more skewed to the line? Do you want to go back? Actually, um, I I think now everybody has, everybody's starting to develop their own interpretation. Um, I'm going to dive into the sociological thing for I mean, okay. <laughs> Everybody is starting to develop their own interpretation, but it's starting to be added to because of what their friends are starting to tell them. You know, for instance, I mean, all of us, you know, we, we have friends or, you know, acquaintances who will say, you know, we, we may talk about a date, we may go out and, and you know, the date may go wrong. And, and then guys, I know from, from my own personal standpoint, guys will say, well, did you spend a lot of money on her? <laughs> and... And I'll say, well, you know, I took her to the Cheesecake Factory, and we, we went on a nice little walk. And guys said, well, why did you do that? You know, you, you know, if you do something like that, you know, now all of a sudden you, you're starting to fall in love. And so now that makes no sense to some people. But if you are a, a easily, you know, intimidated person in terms of the mind, now all of a sudden you're going to start believing that. And you're going to start thinking, well, man, maybe I am falling in love. So I guess since I'm falling in love, let me pull out my wallet and start spending more money. Okay? So now it becomes what? It becomes a domino effect now. Now everybody, now you start to believe it. Now some more of your friends start to believe it. Now you start talking to other people who may not be as strong mentally as you or even stronger mentally. And so now it just becomes a huge domino effect. So I think that's one of the main problems. One of the main problems when it comes to love is we tend to listen too much to what other people say, other quote-unquote experts who may not have ever been in love in their life, number one, and number two, may have had completely failed relationships, but because, you know, they may speak very strongly, we may turn around and say, okay, this person has a strong ideology, I'm going to follow him. So I believe that that's one of the things that really determine definitely. No, 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 <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. <laughs> That's good, I like that, I like that, I like that, that's good. I, I, you know, can I add 
a footnote here. Also, we have to think about right now we're talking about, you know, American and European cultures because a lot of this, uh, these concepts or ideologies we're discussing here right now does not exist for many non-Western, non-European cultures. The concept of women ha and men having to be physically fit and, and stick thin, you know, does not exist in many of these other cultures. We're focusing right now on our culture that we're, we're accustomed to. And even within our own culture, there are different ideas. Like Sir Mix-a-Lot doesn't think that women should be so skinny, for example. You know, well, like, and, <laughs> and to think, um, and think about it from a biological standpoint, that if if there's a famine, the people who have really fast metabolisms, who are thin, they're going to die off first. And you know, those of us who have slower metabolisms, we're going to be pretty hot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anything else about how society shapes love from the audience? He brought up a really scary point before. As long as we have all this pervasive media telling us what love is, and as long as we don't question it as a society, we'll end up a lot like the populace in the book 1984, I think. So, but good question. Okay, we'll move on to our next question for our panelists, and it has to do with taboo relationships. What is a taboo relationship, and where do we see them in society, and what makes them taboo? Michelle? I think one of, one of the big things, especially in America, one of the big taboo relationships are homosexual relationships, but what we see naturally in the animal kingdom is that they also display homosexual tendencies, that you will see two male penguins trying to have sex together, and no one really makes a huge deal about that, or no one's prejudiced, you know, March of the Penguins, everyone was like, well, they do have some homosexual individuals in that population, so I can't see that. Nobody boycotted that movie, because some of the penguins are homosexual, but in the United States, or in other, like, American European cultures, they may be, homosexuals may be shunned. So I think it's kind of interesting that it's such a big deal here for us, but it happens in the whole animal kingdom. For me, I think despite the growing popularity of interracial couples, particularly black males and, and white females, I still think that there's still this degree of taboo in this type of relationship. And I think mainly the reason why I feel that there's still this taboo is because, first of all, there's this changing of the old uh, versus new norms regarding socialization, marital patterns, things of that nature. But I think for the most part, um, America is still a very race-conscious society, despite the fact that for the younger uh, individuals in our society, particularly uh, individuals your age, this doesn't necessarily seem like a really big deal but there's still perceptions and attitudes that, that linger around for people who are older. And it's not that it's good, bad, right, or wrong. It's just the fact that in some of these situations, uh, particularly some parts of the country, it's still not very accepted very well. And, and so I think that this creates this sort of taboo in a lot of ways. But I think it's, it's definitely changing, and it's changing probably quicker than, than what most, uh, most people would want to feel comfortable being around. But, again, interracial marriage uh, couples for me. From a literary standpoint and also, you know, from a realistic, realistic standpoint, uh, taboo relationships now, I think, one of the main problems would have to be quality. And 
when I say equality, I mean both male and the female, you know, or the male and the male or the female and the female doing equal things within a relationship. You know, both people have jobs. Um, both people have quality education. No one person is bigger than the other person. Um, for example, a couple of a couple of stories come to mind. One story that I teach is called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And in that story, John, the uh, husband, he's a, you know, he's a doctor. He's completely domineering over his wife. His wife is trapped in a room. He doesn't allow her to write. Basically, he dominates her entire thinking, okay? Obviously, that's not equal in any way, shape, or form. Um, one of the things that I've definitely noticed with this story is we really talk a lot about feminism, and, and feminists definitely search for equality in stories. Also, a lot of times feminists search for equality in relationships, and a lot of times we as men, especially in books, we tend to be completely domineering, and we also tend to not listen. Okay, our wives or our girlfriends may be screaming passionately for help, or they may be screaming passionately for us to listen to them. And a lot of times we don't. We'll just sit back and say, oh, especially in the yellow wallpaper, oh, you're just sick. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. She'll say, well, I want to write. You know, I want to do things. Ah, don't worry about it. You're not smart enough or you're not intelligent enough to understand equality. Also in this story, um, the John, the husband, he continuously refers to his wife as not only a little girl, but an animal. He calls her a little goose. Okay, imagine trying to do that in today's society, 21st century. Fellas, imagine you trying to call your girlfriend a little goose. Think about the looks that you'll get back from that. Okay, so in, in literature for guys, we are very domineering. Okay, we're very, we try to be very powerful, we try to be very possessive, and if you relate that to today, equality in relationships, I think, are very taboo, and there's something that, and those things definitely need to be improved, definitely. Yes, um, we see uh, through the visual arts a, a lot of reference to these types of uh, unacceptable behaviors in our American society we're talking about right now. Um, and two of the probably the most famous um, uh, movies that existed regarding this most recently was uh, Brokeback Mountain, where you have two men, two male cowboys, right? Who, and it was a, a an, uh, book also that was adopted for movie. And uh, they fall in love, and because, you know, American society is not ready for that type of loving relationship, you know, there's dire consequences. They both wind up marrying uh, women and living in this total hell of an existence, you know, because society doesn't accept their type of relationship. And uh, even though there are uh, gay rights that exist in our culture, there's still there's a lot that we have to work towards, you know, to accept people of this uh, situation or, or this uh, choice that they have made, you know, for the type of love that they feel is important in their lives. Um, also, the other movie, Boys Don't Cry, Hilary Swank, you're all familiar with Hilary Swank, um, who plays a tran transgendered uh, person um, who actually do I give it away? <laughs> you know, who's murdered, uh, raped and murdered, you know, because of her, her uh, situation, her physical belief in her identity and herself. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with how society shapes how we view these types of relationships in our culture. Um, as uh, Leonard and Michael 
and I think Michelle also mentioned, you know, the taboo relationships of between the, you know, interracial rela relationships still exist in our society. Yes, it may be a little more acceptable than it was in the 1960s when you have Sidney Poitier uh, playing the role of a very prominent doctor whose uh, girlfriend uh, brings him home to mommy and daddy, you know, and, uh, and he really is not accepted um, from the 1960 movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, or even an updated version in 1991, Jungle Fever. I mean, this is 1991, the 20th century, and we still had this problem existing. And even now in the 21st century, the uh, movie Monster's Ball, which is a whole other set of issues, of course, thrown into this movie, but nevertheless, you know, the interracial relationship between this female and, and uh, male from different races, and, and still, um, with the critiques of this movie, there's still a lot of outrage of having that type of relationship being uh, sexually explicit in, in theaters for, for, you know, the 21st century, so it still exists. Um, as Michelle and I were talking about, Michelle really mentioned this to me previously in a meeting that we had, uh, polygamy and polygamy, you know, still um, outlawed, uh, even though we know it does exist, mostly in southwestern states like Utah and uh, uh El Dorado, Texas, I believe it is, and uh, parts of New Mexico and Arizona, uh, yet, you know, the government does not accept these types of relationships. So we do have these taboo relationships that are supposedly, in theory, unacceptable, but they do exist in our culture and society. Okay, so Michelle pointed out there's really no such thing as taboo relationships in the wild, and there are homosexual instances there. Leonard discussed interracial relationships, how our society doesn't seem 100% accepting of those yet. Michael talked about women and men and their gender roles and what's considered appropriate as far as the marriages and Gina showed some representations of taboo relationships in movies and in art. To the audience, what comments or questions or examples or anything about taboo love do you have for us? Absolutely, because if the woman decides she's going to take four weeks off of maternity leave, it really takes about six months for a baby to make that bond with the mother. And so she, in the first six months, and um, this really, any, any person can um, kind of substitute that love in a way, but that biological, that release of that oxytocin that bonds that attachment, it really needs to be there for at least like six months. And so if the mom decides to go back to work really quickly, after that, what happens to that attachment? So that might be why we see family relationships a little bit more unstable now in the 21st century than we did in the past. That's a good point. Yeah, I'd like to just mention a little bit about that. Um, you're absolutely right. Those, there is a, a great deal of change in it, of gender roles and gender expectations and relationships, particularly with the fact that um, a lot of women today are, are long overdue for this empowerment in terms of getting the college education and achieving some degree of uh, educational occupation and income attainment. I think one of the things that sometimes um, 
us men, we may not uh, want to discuss this because for the most part we're not all that very good at verbalizing our feelings, is the fact that in our society we're taught to be in charge. We're taught to uh, be the head of the household. Given the fact that these changes are occurring with, let's say, our spouses, uh, maybe that role is not necessarily needed anymore. So what's, what's happening to men today? My opinion, I think we're in this sort of transitional phase of what is our role, especially with this now shared power. And in some cases, the power has shifted even more to the other side. It's what we, you know, it's, it's what is our role now when it comes to parenting? Are we going to do more in terms of staying home with kids? Are we going to be the one when, when our child is sick at school that they're going to call the father and not necessarily always call the mother? There's a lot of these different transitional phases that, that men are going through right now that's, that's kind of tough. And I think over a period of time, we will adjust. Because we're we we're just phasing you out because your chromosome is shrinking. No, yeah. we're just changing <laughs> our role. <laughs> yes, Could have been. He could have been. Look how he acted sometimes in that scarf. <laughs> and it's okay. <laughs> From the audience. Yes. But again, you have to remember what culture we're talking about because a lot of these relationships exist in non-Western, non-European civilizations, um, and uh, they're not taboo at all. You know, different African countries where uh, the concept of homo homosexuality or polygamy is highly acceptable and it's necessary um, for the tribal group or for the group unit. Um, so, you know, it depends on, on which art artists we're talking about. If you're talking about American and European artists, yes, we are seeing a trend in the 21st century of, of uh, more of these. Uh, issues uh, coming out in the forefront and having the public accepting them. I think, uh, well, I know, you know, in the 1960s, a movie like Brokeback Mountain would not be at a mainstream as a blockbuster movie, you know, but yet we have this issue that was a mainstream movie in the 20th, 21st century. So uh, we do see this, uh, you know, this more um, open-minded kind of interpretation and influence on the general public um, due to, you know, the changing of uh, our social social ideology and interpretation of what relationships really are and, and what is it that we will accept or not accept as, as a society as a whole in America. I just want to add to that from my background. Narrative can be one of the most persuasive and informative rhetorical techniques. So yes, movies or any, any kind of representation of taboo relationships can persuade and change the society toward accepting or not accepting those relationships. Yeah.
Yeah. Yes, I definitely think that's going to happen. Matter of fact, it's happening. It's happening now. Did I give you permission to speak yet? Um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I know you didn't. But I just, I just had to jump in there. I'm down. <laughs> yes, I can definitely speak from personal experience more so than anything that roles definitely changing where women are starting to take over a lot more. For example, um, I have a friend who is dating someone. She's 41 years old. She's an investigator for the Board of Education, and she's in a relationship with someone who's 33, has no job, and lives in his father's basement. So, yes, the, the roles are definitely changing. I, I actually have a lot of lady friends who are complain, as a matter of fact, that they have the top job, they have taken over as head of the household, while their male counterpart is sitting at home watching TV, eating Cheerios all day. So my response to that would be an emphatic yes, that right now, as, as we speak, that roles are definitely changing, where there are more and more women who are a lot more aggressive, who are a lot more determined to not take that back seat to men and to ensure that they will be at the top. And now they're starting to look for men to meet them at the top, and a lot of guys out here, to be frank, are just not stepping up to the plate. And a lot of women are getting frustrated with that. So, yes, roles are definitely changing, I believe. I, I know with some recent scholarship that I've read, there's sort of this new trend now. Um, female feminism, you know, really uh, is being boosted, and there's a, it's coming up to the forefront. Whereas in the 90s, you know, the feminist movement kind of waned, and now in the 21st century, it's going really full-fledged because of these issues that, um, that Michael mentioned. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the fact that in our society, uh, particularly when it comes to making it in our society, sometimes we, we have a big problem with trying to di differentiate the difference between a need and a want. We, if things that we want, oftentimes we will spend extra time to, to try to get that. And it's not that that's good, bad, right, or wrong, but the more time we focus on these things we want as opposed to what we need, something else is going to lose out. Oftentimes it's quality time in the relationship because now we're more focused on materialism as opposed to quality interaction. But I just want to just quickly comment about the last uh, question, too, that the, the lady mentioned um, with regard to dominance. I think language affects uh, how we behave in our society. And a word like dominant, I think for the most part, will probably be changed with something else, like maybe equity. And, and, and given equity, there's still some degree of dominance. But I think overall, it'll take a very long time before it actually even get close to this, this notion that, that there's going to be this sort of Amazonian type of new relationship issues where men are now going to be these very subservient. They're just going to be doing more in the relationship. And if that's being submissive, that's, you know. Right, and, that, and I think for the most part it depends on the relationship. Oftentimes, each according to their gifts in terms of who can do what is more in the best interest of the relationship the, the best. And oftentimes that could be someone that's doing more with money as opposed to 
other sorts of issues, but I think it's going to be more of an equity as opposed to, you know, this free ticket that now, you, you know, women are going to be just totally dominant. It's just they're going to have a lot more rights, in my opinion, in relationships. How does this all relate to what goes on with Winston and Julia in the novel? Um, and she pointed out that in the novel, Julia is actually the dominant one in the relationship. She controls it. She starts it. She's the one who moves it forward. And even sexually, she's the one who takes charge. So comments from, you, from the panel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My interpretation and scholarly reading of uh, Orwell's 1984, feminist reading I'm discussing now right now, uh, Julia, yes, is, plays the role of the femme fatale, and we see this uh, throughout history, and, and I brought in one slide at least to show the allusions to this moralistic uh, overtones of, you know, uh, Julia as uh, Eve, who brings down both, you know, uh, uh, Winston and Julia, you know, for the sake of uh, her greater need. Um, but again, in another point, some of the feminist uh, authorship that I read also believe that Julia... Um, as a feminist, you know, was trying to control her own body, her own thoughts, and that was like her way of having control of herself, um, other than having, you know, Big Brother and the government, this totalitarian, you know, uh, uh, government ruling over her. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of different interpretations of the relationship and the role that, that Julia plays. Personally, I think that Oro really uh, draws more allusions to uh, the Bible and the Adam and Eve, uh, you know, our typical relationship. Okay, transition to our last question, and then there will be, again, time for questions from the audience. Speaking of words, from my background, I'll tell you that words and thoughts are inextricably linked. It's really, words do not objectively describe a reality. The word shapes how you think about it, what you know. It shapes your knowledge. And in the book, of course, you see slogans like ignorance is strength, freedom is slavery, these sort of contradictory terms to control the minds of the populace and we as far as the persuasion goes the words you choose will shape the reality in the minds of your audiences for example say you had a legislative bill to ban certain taboo relationships you wouldn't call it the don't let gay people marry bill you would call it maybe a defense of marriage act now rhetorically the bill becomes about defending what we care about, defending families, not limiting rights for other people. So what you name a bill like that, for example, is you know how you control how people are able to think about it. And of course, in the book 1984, if you guys are up there with, they call it news speak, they are erasing words out of the English language so that people can't have certain thoughts because the words aren't there. And if you can sort of have the thought, you can't express it to anyone else without the word. So you know, I guess the lesson is, is grow a big vocabulary if you ever want to be able to persuade and fully flesh out ideas and things like that. So about the language of love, 
How, let's uh, hear from our panelists about that. Who would like to start? So, according to biology, really the language of love, it comes down to your DNA. And so <laughs> DNA it is um, instructions for how proteins are made. So proteins are expressed as traits or what we know as things like eye color and hair color. So really, when you're looking at someone and you're attracted to them, you're really attracted to their genes, their G-E-N-E-S, not their J-E-A-N-S. <laughs> Um, so it really comes down to DNA. Ready. Well, first of all, I, I, the research shows that 60% of all communication is nonverbal. So even when you think you're not sending a message, you are. And a lot of times it doesn't necessarily have to be in the form of, of words, uh, particularly when we're, we're looking at issues of love. And I'm looking at this, again, from the perspe perspective of, a, let's say, a male perspective. Um, the language of love could be what you do for that person, particularly something that you know is going to give them a really, really good feeling. Like, for example, uh, given the fact that we have a lot of couples who are working a lot of hours and don't get a lot of quality time together, what about just slipping a little note inside of her purse just to surprise her, just to say, hey, I love you, I was thinking about you. Or surprise her with something when she comes home really from a long day of work that you got a bubble bath ready for and all these candles. And she's, you know, oftentimes they'll be like, wow. Or maybe sometimes they'll say, hey, what, now what's going on? Now what do I have to do? Or something like that. But uh, in, other, <laughs> in other situations, I think, you know, even a nice dance without any music, just say, hey, hey, sweetheart, let's, let's, just, let's just have a nice slow dance. There's no music playing. No, I just want to just dance with you. We haven't danced in a while how that particular message of love or language of love can easily be interpreted as, as being very ac acceptable and very favorable. Well, I'm going to focus on the 40% verbal part of, part of uh, love, and that's the actual language. And while I agree, symbols are very important. I mean, you, you need to show your spouse or your mate how you really feel about him or her. However, um, from a literary standpoint, unfortunately, there really isn't a lot of strong, quote-unquote, words for love that we actually know. Yes, if you go looking up thesaurus, you know, Roger's thesaurus, you'll find over 100 different terms that are linked to love, and you'll actually find around 22 that are linked to sex. However, how many of us know even half of the words that are linked to love? Especially when it comes to how we talk to each other on a normal, regular basis. When it comes to slang terminology, when you're sitting around hanging out with your friends, how many of you guys actually use a slang terminology for love versus slang terminology for sex, lust, words like that? Now, I could speak all day on terms of slang terms in terms of lust and sex, whole bunch of four-letter words that we cannot use because we want to keep it clean. However, when it comes to actual love, think about it. When you're having conversations with your friends, what do you talk about when it comes to love? A lot of times, what do we do? We get quiet. We don't say anything. Okay, we, we sit back, we put our head down, we look, at, we look at the table, we look at the floor, we look up. Um, love, um, I love you. However, when, especially from a male standpoint, when guys get together and we talk about sex, oh, that's when the conversation really gets heated, okay? Then we start saying, oh, yeah, I did this and I did that, and we use all different types of 
words that, if they were clean, could actually go into a thesaurus and maybe pass the 112 terms that we use for love. So, yes, there are way, I'd say, up to four times more terms for love than it is for sex and lust combined. However, as a society, you know, as a group of scholars, how many of us know more in terms of love versus in terms of lust and sex? You know, I think in visual terms, of course, because I'm a, an art historian, so we always think visually and not that we, we don't have textual images, because we do, and I've had that on, on the front page right here, right, this very famous motif, which actually developed, was developed in the 1960s, and it really symbolized peace because of the Vietnam War that was going on. So this term right up here that you see, love, in this type of iconographic motif, really did not symbolize the love, uh, you know, intimate relationship between people. It was a symbol for peace during the 1960s. Um, but most people, you know, they just see that word today and they think automatically, oh, it's a symbol of, you know, passion between two physical people or more, right? Um, but that's really not what it originally meant. So we have to think of the context of the visual images when we see them. And one last note from me to end on. In the book, 1984, Julia originally wore a red sash and she belonged to the Anti-Sex League, which, you know, the idea of a woman being anti-sex was a good thing in, in the book 1984. Today in society, if, if a woman is actually very for sex, if she's promiscuous, we have words to describe her, such as hussy. Okay, well, that one hasn't been used since the 40s, but today we have... <laughs> We have, we have, I've brought, I have a list here. We have slut, hoe, skank. Those are all derogatory terms for sexually promiscuous women. Now, what are the derogatory terms for sexually promiscuous men? Stud. Oh, stud, yeah, that's real derogatory. No one wants to be called a stud. Pimp, no one wants to be called a pimp or a player. They'll be horribly shamed. I, th I think they experienced. Dog. We do have dog. Dog, I would say, is derogatory. Okay, how many more? So, since we really don't have many words to describe that about men, that says about, that represents how we think about men and women and what's appropriate behavior and not appropriate behavior. And the fact that we actually, those words don't really exist for a man. Even dog isn't that derogatory, but it's a little, it's not like calling someone a skank. So, that just tells you how our culture uses words to shape how we think about these things. Well, I was trying to tie it into the book and into love and sex, so... Okay, questions, comments from the audience about this or about any of our topics? Well, well, 
actually from a from a musical standpoint i I can speak to this because I was in the music industry for a while. One thing when it comes to love, especially when it comes to r and b a lot of guys just put that in their music to sell records. That's just the truth because what's going to happen? A lot of women are going to buy it. They're going to enjoy it. We're going to make a lot of money off them, and we're going to live in nice, really beautiful, fancy houses. And on top of that, you know, to be perfectly frank and hopefully not too explicit, then you get the groupie effect, okay, which is, which is a really a vicious-edged sword. Okay, so when it comes to music, a lot of guys that I, I know, just being in the music industry, really could care less about love. I mean, names such as Bobby Brown and R. Kelly come to mind because they don't love anything other than themselves. However, what they will do is they will put this type of these type of verbiage into their music, and they'll say how much they love you, and you know, you remind me of my Jeep, and you know, things like that. And women will say, "Oh, he is just so sensitive. Oh, he is so wonderful." When he's just actually out to just collect a paycheck. So, from a musical standpoint, I'm not going to say all, but there are a lot of males that are in music who only do it just for the money just to tell women what they want to hear and to help guys like us out when we're you know dating put that nice little CD in the car so I, I, oh, go ahead Michelle and then we'll take the question um, I think from a biological standpoint that people want to talk about love and they want to talk about sex and, and it's important reproduction is a huge important thing to keep a species going but I think the influence of um, like religion for example um, really affects people and their ability to talk about sex because in our society it's sex 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 sells cereal sex sells everything you know, everything, they have commercials that are sexy, and you're like, what? And sometimes you won't even remember what the product is, but you're like, there is a hot guy in that commercial, right? You don't even know, because it's everything. Our society really forced the sex, but then, inherently, if you're grown, growing up in a household that's religious, a lot of religions say, no, no, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And so I think there's that conflict that people, people want to talk about sex, that it's a natural, sex is a natural part of continuing a species, but our society really confuses us between religion and just kind of the societal pressure of being sexy. Yeah, question. I think for the most part we we're a society right now that we really stress individualism sometimes a little bit too far um, and that in itself sometimes dismisses this whole you know that we're together and so some of the issues that he was mentioning about some of the music, different genres of music, may sort of, you know, represent that or portray that individualism in terms of I'm doing it for this as opposed to this, this love and things of that nature. But I, I think, again, it, this just basically represents the fact that, you know, love is socially constructed. Even people, you know, people that listen to different types of music will get different types of messages. Uh, it's, it's like that universal language. Um, you hear a song and you can you can remember where you were at or what you were doing, especially when you get to be my age, and and it, and oftentimes that's a really good thing because 
you know, it, it usually represents really, really good feelings or, or things that you've overcome that are oftentimes associated with love, too. So. What I'd like to point out about what he brought up is I think it's something society's constantly striving for, you know, like especially the band U2, just for everyone to, to have this humanity, this connection, this love, and we at least strive for it, whereas in the book, 1984, it's completely gone. There, that doesn't exist. In fact, there was an explosion in, like, sort of the ghetto area, and Winston's walking by, and he sees, like, a severed hand, and he just kicks it. He doesn't care. He's not disgusted. He's not horrified. There's no humanity. There's no connection. That has been totally erased so the government could control everybody because there's power in that unity, and they wanted to erase that. So just to tie that back to the book. Okay. Other questions from the audience? Uh, you know, in front here, in front here. really change to you but you release it and it is sensed by another person it's kind of like the same thing as like pheromones which are smells so we can actually like a mother can smell um, or a baby can smell the mother the baby a baby will actually act differently around um, a woman who is lactating that is not lactating because during lactation one of the hormones that's released is oxytocin and um, so that the smell or the sense of that smell is actually taken in by the baby so it's not necessarily that it's exchanged from one to the other, but it's sensed or smelled from one to the other. So thank you for that clarification. From the back. Yes, actually, I... I personally agree with you there. It's a different kind of unity. It's not what we sing about today. It's more of everyone's allegiance to Big Brother. Yeah, I agree with that. I want to bring up a weird point, too, just going back to that, um, the hormones and sensing them by smell. Um, one of the other things that is released by people are pheromones. And um, like that Axe body spray, those commercials where the guy sprays it on and all the women are going crazy to get near him, that's pheromones. It's pheromone. It's supposedly pheromone-based. And people can kind of smell or sense, have that sense of smell towards someone that you actually like. You're attracted to someone um, because of their sense of smell, the smell that they're giving off. And it's interesting. They've done research that the pheromones that you're attracted to are the same ones of your parents. So a lot of times you're attracted to people who smell like your parents. Gross. Anyone else? I didn't say biology was pretty. <laughs> we'll conclude the panel, but let me just ask this one more time. Are there any other questions or comments from the audience? I think there's more research that it actually kind of smells the, the hormones giving off, given off. And there might be something to the energy, but that gets into a whole metaphysical thing that I don't necessarily believe in. <laughs> yeah.
absolutely. They they show that in um, gorillas that gorillas if, if there's um, two females lactating at the same time, the other one can substitute for the mother. Let's say the mother dies or something. Um, someone who a woman who's lactating will take the place of the true birth mother. Very common in Europe, yes, having a wet nurse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. And there's something totally biological to that. So. Yeah. Anyone else? Okay, well, today we talked about the language of love, taboo relationships, how society constrains love and a definition of love from many academic perspectives, and some fantastic questions from the audience. Thank you so much. Again, there are more panels like this and other events going on with the Moraine Valley One College One Book Program that you can find out about on our website. And I think our library wants to say something. And just on behalf of the library, I want to thank everybody for coming. and. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.